As I said before to you in the past, that this message or this series is about answering life's biggest questions. Life's biggest questions. You know what's very interesting? There was an ad that was in the 1980s. It was from Yamaha. And this ad was about motorcycles. And so when you would watch this ad, it would start off like this on TV. It would say, where did the universe come from? And then the next question would be, what should you eat for dinner? And it would go back and forth several times. And the whole theme of that commercial was, life is full of big questions. And life is full of small questions. At the very end, this Yamaha motorcycle comes into view. And it says this, it may not be the answer, but at least it's not another question. <laughs> Life is full of a lot of questions. During this restoration series, we're gonna address several of those questions. In fact, what is also so interesting is that when I was in England, a very interesting phenomenon was taking place. I went there several years ago, and I was experiencing something that was what was written on these buses that were going around England. Now, when I was at these, uh, in England and I was looking at several of these buses, these banners were appearing in all sorts of different places. They said something like this, there's probably no what? God. Now stop worrying and live your life. Some people were actually walking around with these t-shirts that said the exact same things. Other people had these buttons that said, there probably is no God. Now what is so unique about that is that this campaign in England was actually started by this individual. His name is Richard Dawkins. He's considered the foremost authority on atheism. He's a published atheist. He's a vociferous atheist. He debates many different kinds of theists and creationists and utterly decimates them in debates. Richard Dawkins is probably, uh, you could say, the most well-known atheist there is in the world today. And he has started this campaign because he believes that people need to be free from this superstitious thought known as theism or the belief in God, and the belief in God. You know, when I was taking several classes in logic and reasoning just a few years ago, there's one thing I begin to understand about atheism. Anybody know any atheists here? Raise your hand if you know an atheist. Okay? Now what is so interesting about atheism is that atheism of itself is a little bit very, it's a little interesting because it's kind of illogical. Now you're saying to yourself, what in the world does that mean? Take a good look at this. Atheism positively, uh, positively affirms that there is no what? God. But can the atheist be certain of this claim? You see, to know that a transcendent God does not exist would require perfect knowledge of all things. Omniscience. In other words, to be omniscient, you means you have to have all knowledge about all things everywhere at all times. And to say that something does not exist would require you to have that omniscience. To make an absolute negative statement, you would have to have absolute knowledge of all things because there are things that you do not know, being a finite creature. Goes on, to attain this knowledge, you would have to have the simultaneous access to all parts of the universe, omnipresence. Therefore, as an atheist, to be certain of this claim, you would have to possess godlike characteristics. Obviously, mankind's limited nature precludes these special abilities. The atheist's dogmatic claim is that therefore clearly unjustifiable. The atheist is attempting to prove a universal negative in terms of logic. This is called a logical fallacy. In fact, when I was taking my philosophy of science class, one thing I 
I came across was that when we were discussing atheism, I would oftentimes raise my hand and I would ask the question, how is it possible for somebody to affirm there is absolutely, definitely no God in this world if they don't have all knowledge? My professor, her name is Judy Cain, like Cain who slew Abel. And she said this, you're absolutely right about that assertion. Unless you have absolute knowledge of all things at all times, at all places, you cannot make absolute statements. In fact, the word atheism comes from two Greek words, the alpha and the theos, which means no God. And it's an affirmation. And for somebody to be a dogmatic atheist and say, there is absolutely no God that exists in this world, would require them to have all the knowledge there is in the world. And nobody does except for God. Amen? Now, the next step is after that, when someone says, okay, I'm not an atheist, I'm an agnostic. And the agnostic says this, I know that there's probably something out there, but we can't know who that is. In fact, take a good look at this. This is something that Jay, Jay Butzerizer, I have not been able to pronounce it correctly, said this. He said this, to say that we cannot know anything about God is to say something about God. Did you hear that? I'll, read, I'll say it one more time. To say that we can know anything, we cannot know anything about God, is to say something about God. It is to say that if there is a God, he is unknowable. But in that case, he is not entirely unknowable, for the agnostic certainly, certainly thinks that we can know one thing about him, that nothing else can be known about him. In the end, agnosticism is an illogical position to hold on to. In fact, when you go, on to the, go into the Latin, the word actually is connected to the word ignoramus. So when somebody asserts that they're agnostic, that they cannot know anything about God, they are making an assertion that nobody can know anything about God, and apparently they know that information. So that position becomes illogical to hold as well. So here we are, we're seeing that atheism is not a tenable position to have, agnosticism is not a, posi a tenable position to have. Well, what's left? There's something called theism. Theism. Interesting individual by the name of Antony Flew. He was a vociferous atheist, published atheist. He debated well-known Christian apologists for several years. And something interesting took place several years ago before he actually passed away. It broke out all over the scene. There was gossip all over the atheistic world. What happened is Antony Flew became a theist. He became a believer in God. He actually wrote this book shortly before he passed away. It says, there is a God with the no crossed out. Well, what convinced him that there is a God in this universe? He wrote this. The most impressive arguments for God's existence were those that are supported by recent scientific discoveries and that the argument to intelligent design is enormously stronger than it was when I first met it. In other words, as there was advancements in technology with the Hubble telescope and with microscopes and all sorts of things that were taking place in the universe, he began to see more and more design in nature. The teleological argument is simply seeing or detecting design in nature. As he can see the infinite universe more and more, it began to astound him. As he began to look deeper and deeper within cellular mechanisms, it began to astound him that he came to the utter conclusion, there must be a God. The Bible even says in Psalms 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the what? Glory of God and the firmament shows his what? His handiwork. Take a good look with the Hubble Space Technology. 
that's increased more and more, and we are receiving the most unusual kinds of pictures from this universe. And it's astounding the things that are being seen more and more as technology advances month after month. It's very interesting, all sorts of things. In fact, what's, what they've come to the realization of is how big this universe actually is. How big the universe actually is. When you actually go into the cosmology department, you'll actually find more believers in God than you will find atheists. Why? It's because as they're seeing further and further out into the universe, they're astounded by the things that they are seeing. You know, I was actually sitting down with a philosophy student uh, just a few weeks ago. He was an atheist, starting his master's. Ardent atheist. We're sitting and we're having good Indian food. That's how I work him up for that time. <laughs> Sitting down, we're enjoying, we're just talking, and all of a sudden he blurts out, I just want to make something very clear. I said, what's that? He says, I do not believe in any God, any place, anywhere, anytime. And I thought, wow, this is very interesting. Must have been some of the curry that you just ate. <laughs> I sat down and we were just talking, and I said to him, I said, here's something to really think about. And I just put up both of my hands. Either this universe came from nothing, or it came from someone. And he's like, I've heard that before. So I asked him another question. I said, where did this universe come from? He said to me, well, it came from the Big Bang. I said, where, what occurred before the Big Bang? Well, it was a singularity. Well, what's the singularity? It was that point where all the laws of physics are actually broken down right before the Big Bang when all of a sudden the Big Bang took place and all these laws were set into reality, into existence. And then I said something to him. I said, what you are telling me is that the universe or existence was at one time in a supernatural condition. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, a supernatural condition is that which is beyond law. And I said, what you are asserting to me is that the universe came from some kind of supernatural condition. And I said, well, let me present something else to you. I believe that the universe actually came from a supernatural being. And I said, well, you've got two options here. You have a supernatural condition that obviously needs another kind of cause, or you have an infinite, all-loving, supernatural being. I said, which one is it going to take? He looked at me and he says, well, I don't know which one I'm going to believe in. And I said this, the reason I believe in a supernatural being who created this entire universe is because I do not have enough faith to believe the other. That actually requires more faith. In fact, when you take a good look at the probabilities of how this universe came to be, it's astounding. Roger Penrose, who actually worked with Stephen Hawking, said this. Roger Penrose of Oxford University has calculated that the odds of our universe's low entropy condition, in other words, the basic conditions for our universe come into existence, obtaining by chance alone, are on the order of one part in 10 to the power, 10 to the power, 123. Now, for some of us who are not interested in math, that we're just scratching our head and saying to ourselves, that sounds like a big number. <laughs> just to let you know how big that number is, if you were to turn it into a fraction, it would be one over the line, followed by a one, followed by 1,230 zeros of this universe with just basic conditions coming into existence. I said, if you wanted to turn into a decimal point, what you can do is you got a decimal point, then you have 1,229 1, zeros followed by a one. That's the chances of this universe coming with just a basic low entropy condition. Then I took it a step further. Take a good look at this. 
of our solar system coming into existence. The odds of our solar systems being formed instantly by random collisions of particles are about one part in 10 to the power, 10 to the power, 60. A vast number, but inconceivably smaller than one part in 10 to the power, 10 to the power, 123. Just to let you know, if you were to go to the Powerball jackpot lottery site, the chances of you winning the lottery are one in 175 million. Do you know how many numbers are in a million or how many zeros are in a million? Six. Now imagine a number that has over 1,000 zeros. There is not a concept to describe that kind of number. So when you're taking the universe and we say, ah, it must have come by chance. Ah, we take the solar system, must have come by chance. And then we're talking about a planet that has Earth-like characteristics. Even more does the equation become confusing. Hugh Ross, a well-known astrophysicist, says this. The results of his calculation of finding 123 of all parameters on a single Earth are, in other words, all the conditions for life just for one planet, are less than one chance in 10 to the 139th power. That's 10,000 trillion, 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 exists that even one such planet would occur anywhere in the universe. And you think we're done. We're not just talking about a universe. We're not just talking about a solar system. We're not just talking about an Earth-like planet. What we are also dealing with is the conditions for life itself. If we were to take enzymes, the basic building blocks for life, Dr. Vikram Singh, who is a professor of applied mathematics at Cardiff University, said this in England. He says, if you look at the composition of a human enzyme, which is the building block of the gene, which is the building block of the cell, the possibility of a human enzyme developing randomly is one in 10 to the power of 40,000. Did you catch that? One in 10 to the power of 40,000, it's more than the number of atoms in the entire universe. This is just enzymes we're talking about. This is not talking about the rest of the human body. Dr. Stephen Meyer, who's a well-known Christian apologist, his debates are top-notch. He carries a lot of credibility. He's also one of the, uh, the fellows at the Discovery Institute said this, talking in his book called Signature in the Cell. The simplest extant cell, the mycoplasma genitalium, a tiny bacterium that inhabits the human urinary tract, urinary tract, requires only 482 proteins to perform its necessary functions. If for the sake of argument we assume the existence of 20 biological occurring amino acids, which form the building blocks for proteins, the amino acids have to congregate in a definite specified sequence in order to make something that works. This is very interesting. First of all, they have to form a peptide bond, and this seems only to happen about half the time in experiments. Thus, the probability of building a chain of 150 amino acids containing only peptide links is about one chance in 10 to the 45th power. Now, just think about this. Here you are, you're seeing all these immense probabilities, and somehow it just came about through random naturalistic process. I don't have that kind of faith. I had my friend who's actually a math teacher do the calculations on this. Based upon the Powerball jackpot probability of winning it one in 175 million, I said to him, I said, what are the odds of you winning the lottery, this particular jackpot, every single month for 10 years straight compared to the universe coming into existence? He did the calculations and he says, not even close. Not even close. Now let's take this for as a thought experiment. Say we have a friend, and we'll call this friend Jonathan Zirkel, okay? Jonathan Zirkel, 
He comes to us one day and he's like, hey, I just won the lottery. And you're thinking to yourself, why is he playing the lottery? Okay? He says, I just won the lottery. You would say, wow, that is amazing. It's possible. But then if he says to you one month later, he says, I won the lottery again. You would scratch your head and say, boy, this guy is really lucky. Third month, he wins again. You would say, okay, something strange is going on here. Fourth month, he wins it again. Fifth month, sixth month, seventh month, eighth month, ninth month, tenth month, eleventh month, twelfth month. What would you begin to assume about him winning the lottery? It's rigged. In other words, there's something else going on. This obviously can't happen by chance. And so when you're taking a good look at the universe coming into existence, the solar system coming into existence, life coming into existence, over and over again, people are saying, well, it just must have happened through chance. That's insanity, ladies and gentlemen. That is insanity. In fact, what is very interesting, when I was writing my philosophy of science paper, I did my final paper on intelligent design. And I wrote it like this. I used an analogy. I called it the Richard Parker analogy. I said, imagine this. Imagine if you are coming home from work one day and you're pulling up to your house. You get out and all of a sudden you pick up the newspaper. You pick up the newspaper and there you read on the front page and it said this, Richard Parker the tiger has escaped from the zoo. If you are within a 20 mile radius, please go inside your house and call the police immediately if you hear, see, or think this tiger is around. So you're looking at this, you're saying, that's impossible. There's no way this tiger is going to travel 20 miles, especially to my house. So you throw the paper down, you continue walking, and all of a sudden you notice, right before you get to the door, there are footprints. You take a good, good look closer, and there you see they are giant cat prints. You're thinking to yourself, Fluffy is not that big. So what you begin to do, and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way the tiger is here. There's no tiger, no tiger, no tiger, no tiger. You're following the footprints when all of a sudden it leads you to the side of the house. You get to the side of the house and there you see a domesticated cat that or a dog that has been torn to shreds. Yet you're still adamant there's no tiger. You've seen the, the newspaper, you've seen the footprints, you've seen the, the trace evidence of this animal or something that destroyed this domesticated livestock or whatever it is you want to call your cat. <laughs> you notice the gate open. You have a choice to go into that backyard. When all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself, ah, there's no tiger, I'm going to go in this backyard anyways. When all of a sudden you hear, I'm not sure if that's how a tiger sounds, but just pretend it does. <laughs> Now, if you're smart, you know what you're going to do? You're going to run back into your house. You're going to call the police department. You're going to call Animal Planet, right? <laughs> That's what an intelligent person would do. But you know what a fool would do? A fool would say, there's no tiger. There's no tiger. I'm going to dismiss all this evidence that I've just looked at, and I'm just going to keep walking in this backyard only to find out there is a tiger, and by then it's too late. Ladies and gentlemen, when you're looking at all the evidences for God and you're seeing the teleological argument, you're seeing more and more advances in astronomy, when you're seeing more and more what's taking place in the world around us and you're beginning to see nature, you're beginning to see design in nature, common sense would tell you there absolutely is a God. But the question is, why is that important? Why is that important, to know that there is a God? Why does that even matter? You know, I grew up as a Hindu, 
And even though I stopped subscribing to the Hindu beliefs, I always acknowledged that there was a God. It was actually during my college days that this God began to reveal himself more and more to me in a very special way. That's actually where I became a Christian is when I was going to college. And it was during this time that I began to go on a journey. When you actually look at the word question and the etymological background of the word question, the word question comes from this word that means quest, a quest to find answers. So the purpose of asking questions is because it's a quest to discover answers or discover what truth is. You know, the Bible says something very interesting. The Bible says that, let us reason together. The Bible actually tells us that we need to reason out and think about the things when it comes to God. Now, there's two things we want to help you with, and that is this. When we want you to come to this series, we want you to bring your Bible and your mind. We can help you with the first one, but we can't help you with the second one. Okay? You have a mind. You have a heart. And God wants you to reason out more and more the times that we are living in and what God is up to in these special times. Raphael Simon says this, To fall in love with God is the greatest of all romances. To seek Him, the greatest adventure. To find Him, the greatest human achievement. The greatest human achievement is to discover who this Creator really is. The scriptures tell us something very powerful. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 through 13. In fact, I never forgot when I was studying with this foreign exchange student, he was from China, and he had broken English. And so when we were talking, you okay? Good, I think you're okay, very good. All right, I was studying with this foreign exchange student. He's from China. And oftentimes it was very difficult for me to communicate to him in English. So I asked him if he had a Chinese Bible. He pulled out a Chinese Bible and had Chinese and English. He himself grew up in a very secular background. So I said to him, I said, I want you to read this one verse. And so we read Jeremiah 29. So I read it, and then I said, I want you to read it in Chinese. He read it, and then I, I told him, I said, I want you to tell me what this actually means. And he contemplated, he thought about this, then he looked right at me and he said this. If I search for God with my whole heart, I will find him. And he said it in such a simple, sublime way, and he looked right at me. There was just this joy in his heart. There are a lot of people who are restless in this world. Their souls are restless, and they're hungering for something they themselves cannot identify. As I said to you, I come from a background of medical professionals, very busy years in schooling, yet in their own heart there's this emptiness and they cannot explain it. Yet when you take a good look at Jeremiah 29 verse 11, look what the Bible says right here, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you. God is affirming his thoughts towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of what? Evil to give you a what? A future and a what? Hope. The implication is outside of God there is no future or hope. God's desire, his primary desire, is to give you a genuine future and a hope. Then look what the Bible says. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And then he says something very remarkable. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. It's very remarkable. 
Bible tells us that if we're going to go on this search to discover who God is, we don't need to go to a telescope or to a microscope. We need to go to one place that's inherent to all of us, and that is our heart. Out of all the places where God wants you to begin this search, he wants you to start with his heart, with your heart. And this is powerful when you begin to think about it. You may not have access to the most advanced technology that's out there, to satellites, to telescopes, to microscopes. But there is something each person possesses, and that's a heart. God wants you to discover the greatest of all treasures, starting with this place first. Oftentimes, when I'm traveling, I often get like a, a neck creak, and so I have to go to the chiropractor. I go to this one particular chiropractor, and the office manager, he's a Sikh, Indian, turban background. And oftentimes, the most awkward kinds of conversations come about when they ask me what I do for a living. And then when I tell them I'm a pastor, there's always this awkward moment of pause. And then they ask another question. So while he was actually working on my neck, he was substituting for the chiropractor who hadn't come into the office yet. While he was working on my neck, he asked me inevitably the question, what do you do for a living? I kind of smiled as I was face down on that bed. And I said, I'm a pastor. There was that awkward pause. And then he said, why? I began to explain to him why I was a Christian and how I became a pastor. And then he said something to me I never forgot. He said, well, at the core of it, all religions are the same anyways. When you go back to it, the basics, he says they're all the same. They essentially teach the same kinds of ideals. So I thought for a moment, and I said to him, I said, you're forgetting one thing. He said, what? I go, it's not about it. It's about him. Discovering the one who was there before all of this began. I said, do you want to know what life's purpose is? To know who he is, to discover him and enter into a special relationship with this creator. He was really shocked by that answer. That religion was not about it. Searching was not about it. It was about a him, a who. Ladies and gentlemen, God is calling us on to this journey. And for some of us, this journey may begin brand new. Perhaps we've never searched for God with our whole heart. For some of us, this journey may be where we have been lost for some time and God is calling us to start searching for him, to start seeking after him again. The Bible's promise is this, very remarkable. It says this, Jeremiah 29, verse 14. This is his promise that if you search for him with your heart, that place that each one of us has, 
He says, I will, I will, this is God speaking, be found by you. God says, I will be found by you, says the Lord. God is wanting us to start this journey in a very special way. The Bible says this, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, says the Lord. The greatest treasure, the greatest accolade one could ever possess in this life, in this existence, is to know who this mysterious creator was and is. This is what this restoration series is all about, ladies and gentlemen. It's about discovering this mysterious God who was there in the very beginning, who produced all things. And in this dark world, he is calling us again back on this journey to start with the one place that each one of us has, and that is our heart. If you will seek me, search for me with your whole heart, says the Lord, he will be found by you. He will be found by you. How many people by the raising of their hands want to say, Lord, I'm willing to start on this journey again. I'm willing to start brand new for some people. For others, it may be a renewal again where you're saying, okay, God, I need to get back on this road of seeking you. And for those who are still a little bit hesitant, God is calling you again to look on that road, this special journey he is offering to each and every one of you today. Today is the first day of this restoration series. I promise by God's word, God's grace, by the very end of it, you will be a different person. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you again for this restoration series. And Lord, you know each one of us. You know all of our weakness. You know how tired we are of this world and the burdens that we carry. Lord, regardless of all that, we thank you that you are inviting us to this special journey to discover, God, the purposes and plans that you have for us, but even more than that, to know, Lord, who you really are. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.